Welcome to Two Sided, the Marketplace Podcast, brought to you by ShareTribe. Hi, I'm Shoot, CMO at ShareTribe, and I am your host. Welcome to the final episode of Two Sided. This is also an experimental episode because we're going to try to do something a little bit different today. A summary, a sort of too long, didn't listen version of what I thought were the five most interesting takeaways from the entire season. Feel free also to use this as a guide to maybe check out episodes that you hadn't listened to before. I will introduce the different topics. So you'll have to listen a little bit more to me talking today than usually. And then for each point, we'll listen to some anecdotes and outtakes from the different episodes that illustrate the point hopefully very well. But before we go into this content, since this is the final episode, and I'm recording this here by myself from my home studio, also known as the garage, I'd love to hear from you. If you have feedback, ideas, or especially if you happen to know some awesome marketplace entrepreneurs I should talk to, reach out to me. You can email me to shuart at shareartwork.com. I'll spell that out. So that is S-J-O-E-R-D at sharetribe.com. Or you can tweet to at sharetribe and I'll read it and react. I'd really love to hear from you. Let's get started with the five biggest takeaways of the first season of Two Sided. So the first one is also straight up the most important one. If you are in the early stages of building an online marketplace, if you are to take away one thing from this entire season, let it be this. Constrain your marketplace. Make it small. This is something that already came up in the very first episode with Lenny Rzitzky. So just for context, Lenny, he worked at Airbnb for seven years. And then after that, while trying to get better at advising marketplace startups, he interviewed a whole bunch of folks at 17 of today's biggest marketplaces, including Airbnb, DoorDash, Thumbtech, Etsy, Uber, and a whole bunch more. Out of his research came the following. Maybe the most interesting learning out of this work is just that there's essentially four steps that every marketplace goes through to get started and to crack the chicken and egg problem. So the four, I'll go through all four, and then I'll kind of dive into each one. So the four steps turned out to be constrain your marketplace to the smallest, kind of the minimal viable marketplace, then concentrate on one side of the marketplace, supplier demand, then build supply and then build demand. So that was the four rough steps. And so to dive into each piece, constraining the marketplace, basically the first thing you want to do, and every marketplace did this except for one, which is kind of interesting, uh, is find a way to reduce the size of your marketplace to either a market, say like New York, or a category, say like antiques with Etsy or Ikea furniture with TaskRabbit. So Lenny mentions a couple of things in here. First of all is how can you constrain your marketplace? There are basically two axes along which you can constrain your marketplace. Number one, geographical location. So this can be town, city, state, country even, but also neighborhood. And then number two, by category. So that is either a product or a service. This kind of depends on your marketplace. And I think it's important to understand that you probably cannot make this small enough. Like later in the talk, Lenny mentions a very cool metaphor that he has learned from Sarah Tavel, who is a partner at Benchmark, a venture capital firm. And then three is something that uh, I think about is Sarah Tavel, who's a, also a partner at Benchmark, has this metaphor of trying to build a, a white hot center in your marketplace, which is essentially just like something that's working really well, even at a tiny, tiny scale. 
And only once you feel like they've got that working, does it make sense to expand and start growing. Mm -hmm. And so my advice there is just try to find something that is working well, where there's, it just feels like this is working. Supply is meeting demand. People are happy. They're coming back. Sure. As an entrepreneur, you should dream big and you should set stretch goals, but don't make the mistake with the marketplace of casting too big a net early on. So this last outtake also takes us to why you should constrain. So we discussed how you should constrain by geo category, but why? So you should try to create the smallest circumstances in which the following things can occur. So number one, supply is meeting demand. Two, there are enough transactions. Three, people are happy and they're coming back. Plenty basically spells out here a sort of hierarchy of needs for your marketplace to be successful. So let's just unpack that a little bit. So supply needs to meet demand. So usually this is phrased as liquidity. Let's go into that for a second. So liquidity is basically the situation where there is enough relevant mass on both sides of the platform. So supply on the one side, demand on the other side, that transactions are likely to take place. Now that sounds very simple, but it actually requires a loads of work to achieve. For example, if you're a local marketplace, and with that, I mean, supply and demand need to be in the same geographical location. So best example is like a car sharing marketplace where if you own a car, you can rent it out there. And if you don't own a car, you can find a car to rent there. So if I'm renting a car, I need to be in the same physical geographical location as the car. And since this one is about private cars, probably also the owner of the car needs to be in a reasonable geographical vicinity. So let's say we launch this here in Helsinki, Finland, where ShareTribe is from. If we want any transactions to happen on our fictional car sharing marketplace, we need to have a significant amount of both cars in Helsinki on the one side, as well as a significant amount of interest to people who would like to rent in Helsinki, Finland. So just getting those two sides on board for one geo and one category of product is already a lot of work. Now imagine if you would add another category of products on this marketplace, motorcycles, buses, helicopters, whatever. If you're in only one location, you need to then add supply and demand once for that new category. But if you are in 10 locations, suddenly adding one new category becomes a lot of work because you need to fill that hole on the other side times 10 or times whatever is the amount of locations that you have. Sophie Edelman shared some terrific insight in episode six on that or how she saw that when she worked for Hired, which is a marketplace for recruiting technical talent. So the way I would think about it is, so you have products and geos, right? So and each, when you're thinking about the products and the geos, each one of those squares within that matrix is actually its own little marketplace. So you can think about supply and demand between candidates and opportunities and in different geos. Actually, it's three-sided in many ways that regard. But but each one will have a liquidity ratio between supply and demand. So you need to think about that when you're building it out. And sometimes that will mean making decisions about not moving into new geos because that will create more complexity. Sometimes that will mean cutting the number of products that you offer. In our case, you know, we offered software engineers, data scientists and designers but, and, and product managers. We found that software engineers had high liquidity whereas UX designers didn't. But actually, when you broke it down by different geos, you might find that central London had high liquidity, but east London did not. And so you just need to be really sensitive to these things and think about the constraints that will affect your product being delivered to the market. So Sophie is basically saying here that you're not just building one marketplace, 
the more geos and the more categories or products you have, you are basically building a multitude of mini marketplaces, like each of which has their own liquidity ratio. And so if you have too many of these mini marketplaces early on, the more work it will be and the longer it will take you to actually get liquidity going. And liquidity, by the way, is not stable. I think one lesson that I've learned from now working in two marketplace businesses is you need somebody who's always thinking about that supply-demand dynamic, and you're always constantly adjusting between the supply and the demand. It's a fine balancing act, which is what makes it fun, because you're not just bashing one thing. You need lots of different tools the whole time. Now, once you get the first transactions, the next step is, of course, to get enough transactions. You need to achieve high liquidity in order to figure out if this is a scalable business idea. If you only get, you know, you can imagine coming back to the car sharing marketplace example, if you only get a couple of transactions in Helsinki per month and scaling to a new city takes you another two months, then likely something is missing in your marketplace idea. And then, of course, the last step, if you get enough transactions, you want to make sure that people that are having them are happy so that they come back for this repeat transactions, this repeat purchase ratio, which is very important. Now, only once you figure these out, should you start thinking about expanding. And so the point is of this first takeaway is that these objectives are just simply much easier to achieve on a smaller scale. And so this topic of constraining is something that came back throughout the season. Of course, also because I asked about it, but we saw evidence in every conversation. For example, Ruthie Amaru from Fredos, a marketplace for freight, told us in episode three, we changed the pitch to, hey, can we bring you some more business? And uh, obviously, you know, a bunch of them said, yes, we got a nice group. We got them ready to go and we published and we were ready to go with worldwide coverage for anybody who wanted to import or export. And that didn't work, right? You cannot start a marketplace that's that big because we'd have, you know, small importers. We discovered that there's a very big difference between an importer who's bringing in 30 prototypes from China, you know, just to play around uh, in a <laughs> yeah. Walmart, right? So suddenly you discover, oh my goodness. There's so, And then you discover, wow, people who are importing into the United States are totally different to people who are importing into India. And, and it, I mean, the world is so big and you look at things from the outside and they all seem so simple the minute you step in. And I think at about that point, I heard a great podcast by the founder of Fiverr who said, no, it wasn't Fiverr. I think it was actually Get, who said, you know what, when we started Get, which is a taxi app, we started it in one block. There was like one little square block, yeah. right? And I was like, ah, that, right? Yeah. So we basically narrowed down. We went from the entire world and everybody in the world to very small importers and exporters from China to the U.S. So... They tried to be the freight platform for anyone in the world to anywhere in the world. And it just didn't work. So they narrowed it down to very small importers and exporters and only between China and the US. So in a way, they did a double constraints, both in category, small importers and exporters only, as well as in geo, from the entire world to just between those two countries. Now, it doesn't always need to artificially be constrained. For some marketplaces, it just comes naturally. For example, for Kickstarter in episode 10, Charles told us the following. So it was projects like that, right? It was yeah. projects like we were all embedded in the arts community of different sorts, right? And A, that was the thing that bonded the three of us as co-founders, but it also got us to focus on almost without distraction, like this particular market. Yeah. And so those are some of the first projects that got launched. 
But many other guests have had the same experience as Ruthie. They needed to artificially constrain their marketplace. Here's Charles Armitage from Florence, which is a marketplace for elderly care homes can hire temporary nurses. Yeah, so we started very specifically in West London, okay. hyper-local marketplace. So you know that people don't want to travel more than you know half an hour to a shift. So that limits your geographical constraint. And you know, day one, you know, let's say you're trying to pick up an Uber in London and there's one driver and one rider in the whole of London. Well, the marketplace doesn't work, does it? So no. achieving that point of liquidity as quickly as possible is, you know, essential and it's ultimately the main task we kind of know anecdotally it's coming more and more evidence-based as we grow but the platform works organically when you've got about 100 shifts per week and about 60 workers to do those within a one hour sort of travel time radius okay and it's just kind of what we've arrived at as our kind of success metric and at that point you know the shift gets posted by care home and it gets filled in a you know suitable amount of time with the right worker with the right skill set now Day one, again, not knowing what we know now, you know, we went into, if I'm a nursing home, I might need loads of different staff types. I might need a nurse, I might need a care worker, I might need a, you know, cleaner, a chef, whatever it is. And we kind of went in expecting to provide all of those staff types day one, and certainly both nurses and care workers. And we realized quickly that by spreading ourselves thinly across both nurses and care workers, we were really, really impacting the user experience of the platform because, all our efforts, you know, at those early stages, your time and efforts are really, really valuable. So spreading them too thinly was really deleterious. So we actually fairly soon into the process, probably three months in, we actually decided to stop doing care workers. And we said, right, actually, we're just going to concentrate on doing one thing well, which is matching nurses to nursing shifts in care homes and dominate that in one small chosen market. And then we gradually went to London and then took us months and months to go to the Southeast and then a year to go to our second city. And then by that time, we kind of started to work out how to make the machine work. Then we went across the country. And we've only recently reinstalled care workers on the platform because, you know, we wanted to reach that liquidity point for nurses in nursing shifts across the country before we went on to the next thing. And also in our last episode, episode 11, Brian Clayton from GreenPal, which is a marketplace for lawn mowing, also hyper-local, shared some similar views and this great catchy book title that basically summarized this entire point. So... Ours is a local marketplace, so we are geographically constrained. So, you know, here fast forward, we're in every major city in the United States, and every one of those town cities had to be built from the ground up. And one thing that we did do right in the early days is that we read every resource we could. And one book that stood out to me was a book called Nail It, Then Scale It. And I knew that we needed to nail the playbook in our hometown first before we went to other cities. And it was excruciatingly tough because it was slow. And so we knew that we had to make it work in Nashville consistently and reliably before we tried to go to any other city. So we spent three years in Nashville. And then our first market outside of Nashville was Tampa, Florida, another year there. And then it wasn't until year three did we launch another handful of markets. And then once we started understanding, okay, this is how we recruit supply. This is how we recruit demand side. This is how we make sure this thing goes right, I don't know, 75% of the time. And this is the things we're doing to make sure it goes right 99% of the time. In here, Brian actually gave another great reason for scaling it down first is that you can optimize your playbook. You should try to achieve this, let's say, operational excellence first, and then you can scale. Well, I hope we drove the point home by now. So let's move to another interesting insight. You don't need a complicated, extensive product in the beginning. So 
I spoke to Josh Breinlinger in episode two, who is an investor at Jackson Square Ventures and who also was early employee at Odesk and Rev.com. And he gave a great insight because what is actually the product of your marketplace? The product of your marketplace, it's not the software that you're building. But for most marketplaces that I see, I think the important thing to understand is that the product is the liquidity, right? It's not about a really pretty user experience. It's about the interactions that you have on a marketplace. And so, you know, in the real estate world, the product is leads or in a used car marketplace, you know, if you're trying to sell a used car, it doesn't really matter that much what the app looks like. It matters. Did you find a high quality buyer really quickly? And so if someone can come along and figure out how to aggregate that demand quickly, then you have something phenomenal that people will pay for. So, you know, a lot of times embracing them means just simply getting them more leads or getting them more business, which is ultimately what most people want. So the product of your marketplace is your liquidity. And however you make that liquidity happen, that doesn't matter that much. Listen to what Brian had to say. We had something very similar in the first two years of the business, we had a crappy code marketplace. And yeah. so it was a very hard to use product. It was very difficult. It was clunky. It was unreliable. And basically for the first year, our product was some crap that we cobbled together in a little chat bubble in the lower right-hand corner. And basically, in a sense, we would hand crank everything the introduction of the quoting process to the homeowners, actually calling the service providers to make sure that they would show up on time. If they didn't show up, calling around like crazy, trying to find a a replacement. We spent three years in Nashville, Tennessee, trying to perfect the process of a homeowner signs up onto the platform, gets five quotes in less than a minute, reads reviews and looks at data about these service providers and then hires one. And then, they actually show up on the day they're supposed to do the job and do a good job. And that wasn't just the case for Brian. Sophie also shared their worst version. So one of the things I was going to say about marketplaces earlier on is that all marketplaces, when they start to facilitate it, I think a a lot of people think that they just work, but actually behind the scenes, you've got people who are doing this matching because in, in a marketplace, it's all about getting the supply matched to the demand or the demand matched to the supply. And helping them find each other and make that connection and for the transaction, whatever the transaction is to occur. So when we first started, we didn't have a platform. We had a very basic website with a form that people could fill in, both for candidates and for employers. But people still actually just called us up. So we had a you know, phone number on the website and people would just call up and say, hey, I want to do an apprenticeship. Now, if they filled out the form online at the beginning, it was incredibly manual. In the first iteration, we've done on paper and spreadsheets on Google. And we had the roles up on a whiteboard um, in, the, in the office. And then we had the candidate in a spreadsheet. And we'd manually do the match, send the email, and it would be all done like that. Now, what's great about that is if you can build a business where it is, you've got a supply-demand dynamic, it is a marketplace, but you can actually generate revenue without any technology, then you know that you have the ability to develop something that will be more facilitated and you can invest in building that marketplace. And Fredo's, they had an even simpler version. They just had a button that sent an email. I mean, I'm sure we wouldn't be the first ones who built, you know, the search and then a select and then a big old book button. And our book button was pink at the time. I remember that. And all the book button did, and I was certain nobody would 
ever hit that book button. But what the book button did was actually send an email to me and to somebody else, you know, an operations manager. We had optimistically, you know, hired an operations manager. And I was like, no, don't worry. You're not going to get. And then we get this email. Right. And we're like, okay, now what? <laughs> right. Somebody actually hit book. Yeah. So we're like, okay, well, you know, I said to the operations manager, you call the buyer, I'll call the seller. And let's see if this is actually <laughs> a real transaction, if we can make this happen. And he called the buyer and she said, so how do I pay? And he's like, uh, pay, uh, PayPal. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then she said, oh, okay, what's the payment fee? And he's like, uh, 3%, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, the processing fee. So the first few transactions were, you know, obviously took a lot of handholding. And so some of you are probably thinking, well, of course, I knew that already. But you'd be surprised that even though the lean startup and similar methodologies have been storming the world, still a lot of people don't realize this. Even some of our guests learned this the hard way. Charles shared this fantastic story of the first version of Florence. I remember we had a little bit of cash to start off with, not very much at all. And neither of us really knew anything about, you know, how to build a product, how to talk to users, anything like that. So we kind of thought, well, there's this problem and we need this platform to do 100 things. You know, we needed to manage the whole life cycle and do all these different things. And we need it done in the next two weeks. And we only want to spend this amount of money on it. And so, you know, you go to the Internet and ask the Internet if someone can do that for you. And someone somewhere puts up their hand and says they can. And, you know, we ended up spending few months, quite a lot of money to get not even anything approaching an MVP that worked. That was a bit stressful. But it was a really good learning point because what we then did is in that process, obviously, you start speaking to users. And, you know, I went and sat in a care home for a few months and drove some nurses to shifts and things like that. And, you know, you speak to people and you kind of come to the realization yourself that actually what I need to do here really to solve 80% of the problem is a very, very simple product. And actually, we ended up kind of rolling back to just a Google Sheet where the nursing homes would go into a Google Sheet and put in their shifts. And then 10 nurses that we'd found, five nurses actually originally, would say, yeah, interested in doing that one, that one, that one. And then that was it. And there you go. You got a platform there. So another great lesson, you don't need to have a fancy platform in order to get your liquidity going. Now, that brings us to the next subject. How do you keep people on the platform? There are, of course, like multiple ways of doing this, but two that really stood out to me this season. The first one, and this seems to apply mostly to marketplaces where one or both sides of the platform are businesses or professionals, so B2B and B2C, is just this. Build amazing tools. So these tools should be mostly around time-saving or real pain points that the professionals are experiencing. And almost all of the B2B marketplaces that I talked to this season, they had this as a component. So, for example, episode five featured Craxy, which is a commercial real estate platform. Michael DiGiorgio, the founder, he told me about how they build an easy way to solve a number of pain points that every real estate broker had to go through on a weekly basis. And then, uh, you know, another kind of basic one, these are all seemingly really simple, which I think was part of the beauty of it. On like a Friday, you'd have to then go take all of those notes and summarize it and send it to your client and say, hey, this is all the marketing I've done. These are the people I've spoken with. This is who I know is interested in it. This is the feedback I'm getting. And you'd send these like overview reports for all the deals you were trying to sell every Friday. And I figured, you know, let's make that a click of a mouse. So not only do you know real time who's looking at your property, you can also supply them with information and a lot of the document signing and the process of like signing a confidentiality agreement and exchanging documents to get the buyer to know more about the property. 
who that buyer was, all the notes you had, you literally, you know, all the marketing you've done, you literally hit a button at the end and it spits out that report for you to send over to your seller or client so that they know exactly how effective, you know, the sale is going. So Craxy basically built something that made half a day of paperwork suddenly doable with the click of a button. Of course, it's a fantastic value proposition. Scientist.com, which is a marketplace for ordering scientific work, did something similar. Here's what Kevin Lustig had to say when I asked him how they keep the transaction on the platform. The marketplace in many ways can be considered a three-sided marketplace. I didn't want to bring that up too early in our discussion. And because most of our clients where, where the business comes from are large pharmaceutical companies. And these large pharmaceutical companies today, they have about 100,000 people, and they often have about 1,000 people in procurement. And what they do is they're working in 200 different research areas, and they put a few people in charge of each research area. Yeah. And these people then often get to determine how items within their categories will be purchased. Okay? So... Procurement is the third side. You have the pharmaceutical researchers, that's one side. You have procurement, who's particularly focused on making sure that all the regulations are followed and that they're getting good value. And then you have the suppliers as the third side. And so for many of our biggest clients, procurement has actually gone out in particular areas and told the researchers that the marketplace is the only way that you can acquire human samples because it's the only way that pharmaceutical company can be 100% sure that when those human samples are delivered, that they were obtained from ethical suppliers in an ethical way, that the patient that donated the human tissue has actually given their permission to use it. So basically, we have really used the compliance as a way to get recurring revenue, as a way to prevent the scientists from going off platform. And also GreenPal, the marketplace for lawnmowers, they build out the tool set for the business side of their B2C marketplace. So as a service provider, let's say typically somebody calls you off of your Yelp page. Hey, I need a quote. I live at you know 1532 Main Street. Can you come out and take a look at it? You have to drive out there, look at it, walk around, maybe meet with the person, write them a written quote, leave it in the mailbox, hand it to them, hope they call you back. Can you come out Thursday? No, I can't come out Thursday, maybe Friday. Oh, I need it really done by Thursday. You got to go through all this for every single person that tries to hire you. When you use GreenPal, you get 30 of these opportunities a day. It's right you know, here, and you're presented with all of this information, okay? It's like, here's the aerial imagery of this person's property. Here's the street view of this person's property. Here's how many square foot their lot size is. Here is the average winning price on the platform for that zip code. They want their lawn mowed every two weeks and not every week. They are actually expecting a perfect job. They've indicated that. And they've also indicated that they want to hire somebody for the rest of the season. And so we give the service provider all of this rich data around the service request that, by the way, the homeowner was able to pop in in less than a minute. And we're able to make this thing so much smoother than just doing it in the traditional sense on both sides of the transaction. An additional point here to make is that from the marketplace that we interviewed, there's been a difference in the timing of the tools. So some of them, like Fredos, for example, they built the tool first and then added the network or the marketplace on top. 
This can, of course, be a great way to get supply on board early, and it's sometimes referred to as the single-player mode. I think also Lenny discusses that in the first episode. Another way is to start with the network and then build the tools later, like what GreenPal did, for example. So both come for the network, stay for the tool, and come for the tool, stay for the network seem to be viable approaches. Hopefully this point is clear by now, but I hadn't realized before how important this component could be. Now, another way to get people to stick to your platform is to build community. This is easier said than done. And of course, likely, this will mostly apply to marketplaces where there is a consumer or a component, or where at least one side of the marketplace are individuals, single professionals, freelancers, for example. And not surprisingly, this community component is huge for Communo, which is a marketplace for creative freelancers. In episode eight, Ryan Gill, the founder and CEO, told us, My belief was, although this is contrarian, if we can create enough value on the platform for the supply side and the demand side, outside of the transactional side of things, we can build a real community, build tools for them, build events, those types of things. Uh, We could command subscription payments. And I believe that that would also help weed out a lot of fakers, people that want to be. And when everyone has skin in the game, ideologically, you care more about the outcome of the service or you care more about the outcome of the product than how you were as a client because you're paying to be on there. And so I have to also thank Upworks and Fibers of the world. They were pioneers, but I believe it being free, when I use the air quotes, I know this is a podcast, but air quotes for free. It's never free. When you know it's free, you know you're paying through the eye somewhere else. And so the transaction take is always a bad solution in my opinion because it encourages disintermediation and we don't care about that. And this brings me to another interesting insight this season, subscription marketplaces. We haven't seen a lot of that this season necessarily, but Ryan makes a really good case, especially if you're bootstrapping your marketplace or if you don't have any venture capital behind you. If you know that you're offering enough value and it won't be hurting your marketplace effects, you could go for a membership or subscription model early on. As there's a couple of benefits, like first of all, it creates predictable revenue, like Ryan says, but also, the concept of having skin in the game might actually really, really improve the quality of your supply. But also some of the other marketplaces added a subscription layer later on, like for example, Craxy. Initially, they offered their tool for free, but once they felt that it was providing enough value, they started charging separately for the use of the tool. And then let's move on to the final insight, which is maybe unpleasant to hear for anyone about to start a marketplace, but Getting the supply on board early on is probably manual, unscalable work. So like Sophie already mentioned, a lot of the people think, you know, you launch the marketplace and things just automatically start running. I think I can safely say that that was the case for absolutely zero of the people that I interviewed. Almost all of the marketplaces that we talked to did some kind of form of direct sales. Jacob Wedderburn Day the founder of Stasher, which is a platform for finding temporary storage for your luggage, told us about how they got supply on board early on. You know, we've got better methods now, but the the early days, and to be fair, it does work, was just, you know, we'd pick an area and we'd just walk around and we'd see like, see a promising looking business or hotel and we'd go in and we'd either have the meeting there and then, or we'd try and set up a meeting, you know, if management wasn't around. It was actually, it was amazing sales practice. I sort of feel like it's the kind of training every time we hire someone new at Stasha, we make them do at least like one day of just kind of like foot sales like that, just because it's such good business training. And 
for us, I think, especially looking back at the really early days when we only had a handful of hosts on the platform, it was quite important to have that kind of in-person sales experience of understanding, you know, what it was they liked, what it was they didn't like, what we pitched that sort of made them excited, what we pitched that made them nervous and (laughs) try and strike that balance in the way, because that ultimately feeds back and helps you inform the product as well. And Jacob touches on a great point here that it has all kinds of benefits because you will really, really learn the pain points of your customers. You'll be able to sharpen the value proposition and you'll also build great relationships as Charles from Florence can confirm. Yeah, so how did we get the first customers? Well, on the demand side, on the care home side, I found a list of all the care homes in London and I sat down with a phone and just called them all up one by one. and Just old school direct Yeah, eventually got three to one. Okay. Who, you know, had 20 shifts a week they needed to fill. So, you know, promised them that, that we would kind of bend over backwards, try and make it work. And ultimately ended up having to put a huge amount of elbow grease into the relationship early doors because the product didn't work. But, you know, in that relationship building, that unscalable relationship building, you learn a huge amount about your customers. You can make a great sort of place for developing your product. And Sophie faced similar challenges when she was trying to kickstart Hired in the UK. So I was running the UK market, but really I was just boots on the ground. I was, you know, I was just hustling. I would be in Ubers all over London. I called it my mobile office. I'd get in an Uber, tether my laptop to my phone, be doing my emails and calls in the back of an Uber, going from meeting to meeting and just hustling to get companies to start using this platform that nobody had ever heard of. And let's end this episode with my favorite unscalable anecdote of the season. We need to learn how to design, build, execute, launch, and distribute technology. We had to yeah. learn how to do all of these things ourselves, my two co-founders and I. And the first thing we did was we passed out over 100,000 door hangers around Nashville, Tennessee, to try to get people to use this thing. Yeah. And I got bit by a dog while doing this. And I realized that 10 users per dog bite was not a scalable user acquisition strategy. All right. That was it. Of course, there's lots more, loads of other very interesting lessons that you can draw from the interviews this season. But these were my personal top five, so to say. So final recap of the recap. Number one, constrain your marketplace. Number two, you don't need a complicated product early on. Number three, build tools to solve day-to-day pain points from your supply sites for both acquisition and retention. Number four, Build community around your marketplace for retention. And five, getting the supply on board early on probably requires unscalable manual work. I hope that this episode has given you something to think about or otherwise inspired you for your marketplace idea. Or if you already have a marketplace, perhaps there are some lessons in here that you can immediately apply. If you don't yet have a marketplace, but you have a marketplace idea, please have a look at ShareTribe. So we build... Marketplace software, which allows you to get your marketplace platform up and running into the market in a fast and affordable way. No technical chops. You can find us at www.sharetribe.com. Also, this is the right place to send a big thank you to my colleagues, Oli and Mira, who were instrumental early on in giving me very constructive feedback about how I interview. And big thanks also to our designer, Janne, for the awesome design. I still think we should make a t-shirt of the logo. Also, let me know if you're interested in buying one. And a big thank you to Nemanja Koyaya, who has been editing this podcast for indulging all my last minute changes. And also, of course, for making me sound a lot more fluent than I actually am. So 
If you're also considering doing a podcast, you can find him at podcastproducer.org. Now, finally, to repeat what I said earlier, I'd love to hear from you. If you have feedback, if you have questions, if you happen to know awesome marketplace entrepreneurs I should talk to, if you have any additional insights into the discussions that you've heard here, reach out to me through email, short at chartweb.com, S-J-O-E-R-D at chartweb.com, or tweet to us at chartweb. I'd love to hear from you. And of course, the final thank you goes to you, our listeners. That was it. I'm signing off. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Two Sided, the Marketplace podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe. If you listen on iTunes, we'd also love for you to rate and give us a review. If you got inspired to build your own marketplace, go visit www.sharetribe.com. It's the fastest way to build a successful online marketplace business. Until next time.